1: the story well. It's in all the Gospels. In the Synoptics, we know that he's near the sea, near the lake. It proves to be the Sea of Galilee. But in John's Gospel, he tells us very clearly. He's overlooking the Sea of Tiberias, and there's a significance in that. And he looks out there, and he sees 5,000 men Probably a lot more women and children. Who knows how many were there? 10,000, 12,000, we don't know. And then later, he sees about 4,000 men. In Mark's gospel, it's in chapter 8. And in both of those stories where he fed them, there's some common denominators in the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. One of them is that he sees a great, great need. They've been following for many days. Actually, they pursued him in the first account when they were going into the, uh, not the wilderness, but away from the populated areas to get some rest. Anyway, they've been without food and there's no place. 7-Eleven's not open. Kroger's is shut. You know, there aren't any cities around, right around them. They don't have a place to buy food. And so he meets a great need in both instances. He also demonstrates his power he demonstrates his power as the son of man to meet the needs of man men and women but at the same time he also demonstrates his power as the son of God because when he breaks the bread as he breaks the bread he blesses it and he gives thanks to the father and he gives credit to the father to provide for their needs and he does. He provides for them adequately. Another common denominator, is it says, when they finish very quaintly, it says, and they were satisfied. Wow. Another common denominator is they had lots of leftovers for Sunday afternoon. How many baskets? Let's see, five loaves, two fish and the first one, how many baskets did they pick up? You remember? Twelve. In the second instance, there were seven loaves and they picked up seven full baskets of leftovers after they were satisfied. Something to sustain them later. I think it's interesting in the second story in Mark the 8th chapter, not, not long after that, the disciples get into the boat and they don't have anything to eat except one loaf of bread. It makes you wonder where all those baskets went. Another common denominator is that Jesus looked out on, on them and he felt what? What did he feel? compassion and in the earlier account of the 5000 it says he looked on them and they looked like sheep without a shepherd so that's one story the sea of Tiberias John 6 not in the beginning but near the beginning of the ministry of Jesus then you come to after at the very end of Jesus's ministry and John 21 and where are they lo and behold They're back at the Sea of Tiberias. It's interesting. That word is used only three times in the New Testament. And all three times are in those two accounts. Twice in John's Gospel of the 6th chapter and once in the 21st chapter. I think that's not insignificant. Because you see the, the sea was named after the ruling emperor Tiberius, And he was named after the river Tiber. And we don't know exactly what it means, but the closest definition that we can come to is it means still water. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the what? The still water. Now, you know the Sea of, T- of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, could be very tumultuous. We don't know whether it was still then or not, but there is something, I think, to be said there. We shouldn't allegorize too much, but they are by the sea That is the still water and then jesus of course commissions peter Uh, the second story has significance Uh, what does he do in that event how many sermons have you heard on feed my sheep i think one thing it is is it's an act of redemption where he forgives peter three times for his three denials and that's obvious and 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 when he does that he says what he says he prefaces this by saying, if you what? If you love me, feed my sheep. I think what he's doing there in the, in the restoration of Peter is he's reminding him of that compassion that he had for the sheep when he fed them earlier on that hillside overlooking the sea. And now it's his responsibility not only to love Jesus, but to do what? To love the sheep. I think it's a commissioning to the shepherd. Peter is kind of the leader of the group, and he passes his staff, his pastoral staff to Peter, and he says, not only if you love me, he says, feed my what? My sheep. You're going to be a shepherd, Peter, and you need to feed the sheep. I think it's also an act of compassion. He's infusing Peter with his personal love for the sheep. He doesn't just say feed the sheep. He says what? If you love me, feed my sheep. Peter they're going to be your sheep this is a personal thing and then I think it's an act of instruction he's showing Peter how to lead the flock and if walking with the Lord is what worship is he was instructing Peter on how to lead them in worship he said what he said feed my sheep I think each one of those phrases has significance to the church today as we talk about worship. you know We have talked about what worship is in the past few weeks and putting it this way, one way of seeing it is God invites us to walk alongside him and that is worship in everyday life and when we walk alongside him here in this congregation. He says, don't be casual about it. He says, I am the awesome, I am God. I created everything. When you come into my presence, you're coming into the holy almighty God and therefore we do what we confess our sin and if we do, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us of our unrighteousness so that we can do what? John, 1 John 1 says so that we can walk in fellowship with him. And therefore, logically, we walk in fellowship with one another. And then we worship the king. We worship the king and all of his holiness and splendor, and he calls us as a royal priesthood to go forth and to be a holy nation. And holy means holy we must live up to that commitment and last week we saw that we do that with what and we heard about it today again we go out with what with joy and gladness and he renews his salvation in us and he restores that joy and the joy that we see when sinners come to God is like that which is celebrated in heaven So today, I want us to look in light of what we said about Peter and the commissioning, but look at a different text. And it's interesting, Peter wrote this text, 1 Peter 1, I'm going to start in verse 22 instead of chapter 2, verse 1, but we will go through verse 3 of chapter 2. And in today's text, I think it underscores then, as we talk about worship, the importance of God's word in directing the way we worship. You notice every time that Ben leads us in the opening reading he said let let's let what the word of God guide us in our worship this text tells us something about that it helps to direct us in our corporate worship and it also guides us daily in our walk with him as we fellowship with the Lord and with one another when we leave this place as we walk with God the centrality of God's word in worship It also shows how worship meets a very deep need that we have when we look at the word of God. It's not only about what we do to honor and glorify him, but it's also about meeting a very deep need that he has created in us. So would you stand together as we read God's word, beginning in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse number 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is per- perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and the enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word as we take our seats. In this... Two or three things I think we can glean from it, from God's word. First of all, God prepares us for worship. God prepares us for worship beginning in chapter 20, uh, verse number 22, and going almost all the way to the end of of the chapter, halfway through verse number 25. And then there's a phrase at the end of verse 25, I think, that is indicative of how God guides us in worship. So he not only prepares us for worship with his word, he guides us with his word in worship. And then in the first three verses of chapter 2, we see that God grows us with his word through worship. Let's take a look at those. In verses 22 through 25, God's word prepares us for worship. You see... As we have talked through this over the past month and a half, and as we began looking at 1 John 1, 5 through 10, we know that we're called to walk in truth, and if we say that we don't have sin, then we're liars, and we're out of fellowship, not only with God, but with each other. But when we confess our sin... He forgives us and cleanses us of all of our unrighteousness, and we have done that this morning in worship corporately, and when we do this, he forgives us, and then we walk in the light, and we walk in fellowship with him, and therefore, we, we walk in fellowship with one another, and so Peter tells us that the Lord says, therefore, we walk in fellowship with one another, having done these things, we're to do What? we're to follow the third great commandment. The first is to love the Lord your God. The second is to love your neighbors yourself. And the third that he gives, the new commandment, is that you will love one another so that people will know that you're my disciples. So you see, we're prepared in worship to do that, to love one another. It's actually preparatory. It's a preparatory act of worship. So that having been done, he said, since you've done these things, There's also another previous requirement to worshiping God, and that is that you will be born again. Born again through the living and enduring word of God. Now here in verse number 23, he uses the term logos, that is, the word. A parallel to this idea, the living word, the logos that is the living word, is Hebrews 4, and you know it well. For the word of God is what? Living It is not only words on a page. It is living. And the word of God comes alive, but it's also talking about the living logos. That is the son of God, Jesus Christ. The word of God is living and active and sharper than what? A two-edged sword. God's living word can take three forms, the best I can see in scripture. And one of those is what we have just said. It's the person of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about Word-guided worship, it is nothing less than the shepherd, Jesus Christ, leading us himself. In the beginning was the what? Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. And in him was what? Life. And that life was the light of, life of, uh, the light of men. So in this respect, Jesus Christ is the living Word. He says to Nicodemus, and of course, we know where he's headed with this. He's pointing to himself as the source of life. When he said, if you're going to see the kingdom of God, you must be what? Born again. And Peter repeats this here. You see, it's the living word that births again. And it is not just words on the page, although they tell us the story. Holy words from the holy book. But it is the living person of Jesus Christ, the Lagos, that then helps us to be born again. Born not only of water, but born of the Spirit. And it speaks about imperishable seed. And what is it talking about there? It clearly is talking about Jesus Christ, because in John 12, he speaks to the Greeks that come to him, and he's, he knows that he's about to be put to death. And he says what? He says, a seed must first fall to the ground, and it must die before it bears much fruit. So all of these are allusions to the fact that the Word is the living Word of God, who is the imperishable seed. There's a second aspect, though, of the Word given to us in Scripture, and that is the Hrema, that is the breathed Word of God. In Matthew, the fourth chapter, in the first temptation, Satan wants him to, t- to turn stones into what? Into bread. And what does he say? He quotes Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 8. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it's interesting. The parallel in the Old Testament is the same idea as the Hrema, the breathed word. So there's Jesus Christ who is the living word, and then there's the living word that is the breathed word of God. In John the 6th chapter, this morning we heard the passage in the context of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus said, it is the spirit who gives life. You see, the, the, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken, the words that I have breathed upon you, you see, are spirit and are life. So there's the second dimension of the living word. It is the breathed word of God. It is that breathed word of God that creates. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he reached down and he fashioned, no, he didn't. The only thing that he created with his, metaphorically with his hands was man. He spoke and the word brought forth what? Light. He created with his breathed word. There's a third dimension to this living word, and it is the New Testament scripture and the Old Testament scripture, but in the New Testament, it is the graphe, the word. It is that which is, in fact, God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed, and when it says that, it combines two ideas, the God-breathedness, but also the word, when it speaks about scripture there, it says the graphe. The writings you see themselves are God-breathed, inspired by God. The Old Testament parallel to this is in Psalm 119. Debar is the spoken word, and in verse number 25, the psalmist says that he asked God to revive me, to give me life again through your word. In Psalm 50 and Psalm 107, he says, your Imrah, which is the spoken and the written word of God, they make me alive, they give me life. In Psalm one sixteen, we have this idea of the writing of God, not only giving life but sustaining. He says, "Sustain me according to your word." So you see, there are three different facets I think in Scripture as to what this living, enduring Word is: the Person of Jesus Christ, the breathed Word of God Himself that came through Jesus Christ, and also then the writings themselves—they are inspired, the the living and what does it say? enduring Word of God what about this enduring Word of God that guides us in worship the Old Testament is very clear that it endures the passage that is quoted here in first Peter about the grass of the field and how perishable it is compared to the Word of God there he is quoting Isaiah 40 it is the rhema in the New Testament the breathed Word and in the Old Testament, it's the, the bar, the Hebrew concept of the spoken word. You see, the spoken word of God endures forever. And the psalmist, that is David, tells us in Psalm 103, he puts a, fi- a fine point on this. He says, As for man, his days are like what? They're like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. And when the wind, the hot Chiraco wind that comes up from the south then passes over it, it is no more. And then he he says, and its place acknowledges it no more. It's not remembered. Wow. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. I've done a couple of funerals in the past couple of weeks where this has really become very obvious to me. You know I, I love to do the genealogies if you've been to a funeral that i've done i talk a little bit about the genealogical background and, you know one thing that struck me and i said this at the last funeral i was in Haltom city and i said it here too you know when you go through a genealogy and you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of names and you look at a date and a dash and a date and you know the thing about the dash that's what's really the important thing but we don't know anything about the dash you go back four or five generations and we don't know who our own ancestors I mean, we know their names, but we don't know what they look like unless there's an old ten type. But you go back ten generations, we don't even have pictures of them. We know very little about them. They are almost what? Forgotten. That's very humbling, friends, because if the Lord doesn't come back in ten generations, your great 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 grandkids probably will only see you as a name with a date and a dash and a name what does that tell us about our generation a generation today where we have vital interests passionate interests worries and problems hopes and aspirations and yet they come to an end and we become like the grass of the field that flourished at one time and then we perish but the word of God stands forever well that may be of no comfort no it is because the Word of God is not only what He says to us, but it is also what He promises to us. And the Word of God says that He will never forget the saints. Though, man, though men and women and children, generations from now, may not know you any better than a name and two dates and a dash, the Lord remembers you. The Lord loves you, and He does so eternally. And precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints because they come into his glory. But it does remind us we're perishable, but the word of God and the promise of God is everlasting. The word Debar in the Old Testament is eternal. It's relational. Psalm 119 also says says this, Forever eternally, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout what? All generations. Ten generations back, twenty generations back, to the time of Christ, sixty generations back, and it will continue beyond a thousand generations. The Word of God is everlasting. And Jesus gave witness to this himself when he said about his own words. He said, He's prophesying the end times. And he says, This generation will not. Uh, pass away before the things that I've spoken about Jerusalem will come to occur. And that happened in, in A.D. 70. But he also says, you see, my words are eternal. He said, this generation will pass away. But what does he say about his words? But my words, my lagoi, the things that I have spoken and given to you will never pass away. So first of all, I think that we see that the word of God prepares us to walk with him. And encourages us secondly very brief phrase in chapter verse number 25 it says and this is the word that was preached to you God's word not only prepares us but it guides us in worship so when Ben makes that makes that statement that we're guided by God's word what does it mean well his written word obviously gives us guidance every day if walking with the Lord is worshiping when we leave here and we walk with the Lord we're walking in worshipful fellowship with him We know that the the psalmist tells us in Psalm 119, we do what? We hide his word in our heart, and VBS, we're going to say it how many times this week? We hide his word, children, in our heart that we might not what? Sin against him. It guides us in everyday life. Psalm 119, thy word is a what? A light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet. It guides us in worshipful walk with him but it also guides us when we come together in corporate worship as well, doesn't it? You see, what is this word? Well, it's the preached word, which is spoken about in verse number 25. You see, he, he invites us, when he calls us to walk with him, it comes through the preached word. That is, that which is kerusod, that which is proclaimed, that, which what, that is what Peter did at Pentecost. Romans 10 makes it very clear whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved and that means whoever calls upon the Lord will be saved they will come into fellowship with him but it also means that when we call upon the Lord here in this congregation time and time again as saved people we continue to be saved and what does it say? how then will they be called to believe if there is no one sent to call them how will they believe in him whom they have not heard And how will they hear without a what? Without a preacher. You see, the preached word of God. And how will they preach unless they're sent? When we leave here, we go to preach the good news to all creation. It's the preached word. So when it says this is the word that was preached to you, this is what it's talking about. You see, it's talking about the words that we have that we take with us, that guide us, and we give to others that guide them. Here in 1 Peter 1, it is not just preach. I mentioned the word keruso and that's not an Italian tenor. Okay, that's that's the verb for that's the verb for preach to proclaim. But the word that is used here is Evangelizo, and you know what that means? To evangelize. It actually means to gospelize. It's the verb that says take the gospel and deliver it. Gospelize. Sort of like I was talking to Linda beforehand. She is an organist, so this morning she did what? She organized. That's bad. Alan, pianized? Pianistized? I don't know. What do we do with the gospel? We gospelize when we proclaim the news. We proclaim not just speak, we speak the good news. And that's what he says here. There are four ways that we can gospelize and one is very clearly through speaking and that is Caruso, to proclaim forthrightly as Peter did at Pentecost and Jesus' commission and he gave the commission in all the gospels. In the gospel of Mark, he gives the gospel not so much as discipleship although that is where it leads in Matthew 28 but in Mark the 16th chapter he says go into all the world go into all of creation and do what? Preach the good news, and there it is, gospelize the world. You see, it's the preaching. With Peter, the verb would be keruso, he proclaims. It's the spoken word, it's the kerygma that's drawn from that verb. And the kerygma, you know very well what it is. It's a very simple preaching of this message. God sent his son. You crucified him. He was dead. He was buried. God raised him up. Therefore, do what? Repent. What shall we do then? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. After you have believed, you'll be saved. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. That's the simple message of the gospel. That is the preaching of the cross, which is the power of God, Paul tells us in Romans 1. And we do it not only in the church, we do it not only from this pulpit... We do it not only in our Sunday school classes, which many of you taught and sat in earlier this morning. We do it when we leave here. We preach. We proclaim the good news. That word that was preached to us, we preach to others. There's a second way that we do it, and that's by acting it out. You know, supposedly Francis of Assisi put it this way. Preach the word, and you know the rest of it. Preach the word, and if necessary, what? What? Use words. What's he, what's he saying there? Well, you know, if you do a little bit of research on this, you can't find that anywhere in Francis of Assisi's writings. Hmm. And so there are some evangelicals that say, you know, no, you, you, you always have to use words. You always have to preach. You always have to speak. You always. And, and I get it. I get it. You know, sometimes we're intimidated and sometimes we don't speak. And we use that excuse. We say, well, you know, they'll just know by my actions. But folks, we do preach the word through our actions. And sometimes even when we are not able to speak a word, we preach even without words if it's necessary. Really what St. Francis said was this to his Franciscans. In rule number 17 of the Franciscan order, let none of the brothers preach contrary to the form and institution of the Holy Roman Church. And by the way, Francis was one of the great verbal preachers of his day. That's what he did. He went from village to village to village, and he proclaimed with his word. He preached the word of God. But what he went on to say, he said, he said, follow the teachings of the, of the church, unless this has been conceded to him by his minister. Then he said this, nevertheless, let all the brothers preach by their works. So what he's saying is, we do preach through our works. The point's this. A second way of preaching is to give evidence of what we speak by practicing. Practice what you preach. A third way that we preach the word is by rehearsing it, by rehearsing it. And especially when we come into corporate worship, we rehearse it every time we come. You take your bulletin and you look at it, if you would, if you got it with you. I hope everybody got one. Today we rehearse the word. We began with Psalm 19. And it wasn't just willy-nilly picking some passages of scripture and putting it on the liturgy great thought went into this it reinforces what the word is instructing us about today look at psalm 19 thy law o lord does what it restores my soul this is about the word your testimony o lord makes the simple wise the precepts of the lord it rejoices the heart the law of the lord enlightens the eyes And they are what? At the the, the end of the passage, they're sweeter than honey, than the honeycomb. And in keeping them is great reward. You see, that is rehearsing the word of God. And it guides us in the worshipful study of 1 Peter 1 and 2. There's a linkage. It's the word. Uh, Look look at John 6. Well, you can't. It's not in the bulletin. But when the scripture was read earlier, uh, it it spoke about, I am the living God bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. It, it reinforces what Peter is saying in First Peter, we rehearse the word as we prayed in our opening prayer, in our prayer of confession and our prayer dedicating what we give to the Lord. those are spiritual prayers that we offer up to him as sacrifices and we rehearse our devotion to him. We rehearse in singing. Singing hymns and spiritual songs. The first one that we began with. Look at the bulletin. It shows that we long for the pure milk, doesn't it? As the deer pants. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for for you. You alone are my heart's desire. And I long, I long to worship thee. You see, that is repeating what Peter is saying in chapter 2. God's word feeds us we sang about that break now the bread of life dear Lord to me as once you broke the loaves beside the sea the sea of Galilee the feeding of the 5,000 you are the bread of life dear Lord to me your holy word the truth that rescues me give me to eat and live with you above teach me to love your truth for you are love. rehearsing the truth of scripture in what we sing the The word is preached, I hope, this morning. But we sang about it, didn't we? Because in that great choral special, it said, O Lord, when I'm weary, it reminds us of what we said last week. Sometimes we get weary, we get beaten down. And he restores the joy of his salvation in us, and it links to what we're talking about today. It says, Oh Lord, when I am weary, when I feel the days I'm living are in vain, may God help me be faithful to the word that you have given to proclaim. Proclaim the word, proclaim the word, and you will go out with joy and be led forth in peace, Isaiah, (laughs) and the hills will break before you into song. We rehearse these things as a matter of worship based on what? On the living word, Jesus Christ, which was breathed upon us by his Holy Spirit and which we read in Scripture. We, re-enact, we, we, we also reenact the word. That's another way that we preach the word. From time to time, we baptize. We do what the Lord commanded us to do, and when we do that, and we say this from time to time we, when we baptize. I've heard Clyde say it. I've said it. We do what? We preach a sermon, and it's not the, just the preacher or whoever who dunks the person under the water. It's the person who's coming out of the water in that symbolic act that is preaching a sermon. I have then what? Died to self, I have been buried unto death in Christ by baptism, and I have been raised to walk in what? In newness of life. That, that's a sermon. That's an illustration. And today, as we come to the table, when we pull that cover off, and the deacons and I share with you in the institution of, it's more than an institution. When we share the supper, the Lord's supper, it's a symbolic act. And it does what it commemorates the new covenant that is in his body and his blood and it proclaims it preaches it says that and in 1 corinthians 11 we proclaim what the death of our lord until he comes again so there are many ways that this very short phrase at the end of the chapter i think is used this is the word that was preached to us and it is incumbent upon us to do what to do the same thing To proclaim, to gospelize in so many different ways. And the guide of that is the word of God. And then finally, we see God's word grows us through worship in verses 1 through 3. We should long for God's word. We should yearn for it. We should desire it. We should be passionate. It it, it can also be used in a negative way to harbor a hidden desire. Mm, Passionate. It has two dimensions. It has a personal dimension and an end times dimension, a future hope. The personal dimension is, it talks about a personal relationship. You know, Paul, when he writes to Romans, when he writes to the Philippians, and he writes to his dear friend Timothy, he says, I yearn, I long to be with you. There's the personal dimension. He talks about the Thessalonians. Yearning to be with him reminds me of being in the desert. And that truck came rolling in from down south, 300 miles down south and it was half burned. The mail truck caught fire. Let me tell you, folks, when GIs are away in war, they yearn to hear from their loved ones. And you can just feel your heart sinking into your stomach, wondering whether or not four or five weeks of mail from your loved one was destroyed on that truck. We yearn to hear from our loved ones. When 9-11 hit... What did everyone do? Well, some of you aren't old enough to remember that. But what happened? 20, 21 years ago, what happened? Everybody immediately did what? They picked up the phone, and they called their loved ones because they yearned to hear that they were okay. It's that, it's that kind of yearning. You see, it's, it's relational. We should yearn for the for the for the, the pure milk. It's also about future hope. In Second Corinthians 5th chapter, he says that we earnestly yearn, we long to be clothed with our future clothing, our heavenly clothing. We yearn for the pure milk of God. You know, milk is that which sustains us and nurtures us from infanthood beyond. And we live on more than just milk later, but it begins with milk. And it's to be pure. It's to be unadulterated, unalloyed, nothing mixed in it. But it also means that it is without guile or deceit. You see, it's tr- the true word. This is used uniquely in the New Testament here, this word. And we are to desire the pure milk of the word. And it's interesting here. The word that is used here is not logos. It's not the noun. It's the adjective, logikos. What do you hear in that? We're to yearn for the logical word. What does a logical word have to do with spiritual things? Well, it can be interpreted a couple of ways. It's the same word that is used only elsewhere in Romans 12, 1. Where we're to present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices to God, and that is our, as it says in NASB, your spiritual, there it is, spiritual service of worship. It can be translated that way. You see, it can be focused on the object, that is, our spiritual transformation. The NIV says it's your true and proper worship. The King James says it's your reasonable service. The ESV says it's your spiritual worship. It's translated different ways, this word logikos but it has two, two usages One is that it pertains to speaking the, uh, something that's reasonable logical and according, ac- according to God's logic or it can focus on the target it can, it can focus on the target as meaning a kind of spiritual effect upon the target. So when we read this passage in different versions it reads this way the NIV and many other versions speak about the pure spiritual milk. The American Standard Version speaks about the spiritual milk, which is without guile. The King James Version takes a different tack. It speaks about the sincere milk of the word, and the of the word is the logicos. And you have heard me read that from the NASB this morning. There are two logical meanings here. Pardon the pun. One is long for the pure milk that is the word of God. You see, it is the God-produced milk. The other is long for milk that is spiritual in nature. Jesus' word, God's word, feeds us spiritually from the logical mind of God. He says, I am the bread of life. So he himself feeds us. He is the pure spiritual milk. It is spiritual food. We're told in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, even in the desert, as they were eating in the desert, that was not just physical food, it was spiritual food, because it pointed to the coming of Jesus Christ. We have to be very careful that we don't read everything in the Old Testament allegorically, but here this passage tells us that that food that they ate in the desert was symbolic of the coming of Christ. And then he says, I am that food, I came down from heaven, you see, and I gave the permanent food. This word, then, is Jesus Christ. It is spiritual food, and it's the only good food there is. It's the only food that truly satisfied. When he fed the 4,000 and the 5,000, it said when they finished, they were satisfied. Isaiah puts it this way. We read it before we started worship this morning. Why do you spend money on that which is not truly bread? Why do you waste your wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen to me carefully and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. The true and spiritual word, and that is Jesus Christ. That's what's spoken about here. It is a permanent word. Jesus said, my words will last forever. He also said, whoever comes to me will never hunger, will never thirst And if anyone eats this bread, he will live for a while, forever, forever. You see, it is this spiritual word that we're talking about that is God-breathed, that is manifested in our reading of the written word, and it grows us in salvation so that we will become pure, I mean, mature. We don't remain babies. We must grow, and we have warnings in Scripture from that. The author of Hebrews and, the, and Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about believers that never grew up. They never grew up beyond receiving the milk. And probably, I think, the reason that is the case, even though it doesn't say for say so, is they weren't drinking pure milk. They were probably drinking adulterated milk. But if we drink from the pure milk of the Word of God, who is Jesus Christ, properly God-breathed, and we're guided in worship and here and when we walk from this place. And if we use the word of God to do that, and we digest it fully, then we will grow and we will mature according to the pure milk of God. You see, this word in respect for salvation puts away infantile things. In verse number one, it puts away the shallow emotional reactions of deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. The Word matures us and grows us. The Word guards us against bad teaching. Time and time and time again in Ephesians, in 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4, and 2 Peter 3, we are warned that we must abide by the Word of God to avoid the errors of deceitful men, deceitful spirits, unsound doctrine, unprincipled men that are wavering, and we must remain steadfast upon the Word of God. The Word of God helps us work out our salvation. That's what it's talking about here. Ephesians 2 says that we work out our salvation with what? Fear and trembling, holding fast to the Word. Holding fast to the Word of life. Proving to be God's children without reproach in a crooked and perverse generation. The Word of God helps us grow in our salvation by giving us greater knowledge of God. 2 Peter later tells us in his following letter but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ according to the word of God. The word of God then, uh, with respect to salvation, reminds us of the glory to come. In Ephesians 1, we're reminded that we are to have our, the eyes of our heart enlightened so that we might know according to the word of God the promise of redemption that is to come. And Peter tells us in his second letter, the word of God reminds us in our salvation that it is preserved to the day of salvation, which is yet to be revealed. The word of God then prepares us for salvation that is going to be complete someday. And then finally, he says, it causes us to taste God's kindness. God's kindness To the Ephesians, Paul put it this way, in all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, you see, through his word, according to the kind intention that he designed from us that was purposed in Christ. The kind intention of God that Peter is talking about here, then Paul tells the the Ephesians is, it is the redemption of Christ's blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses. That's God's kind intention for us. And then we taste the word of God. You know, Jeremiah ate the scroll because God told him to eat it and taste it. And he said, the words were sweet. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and a delight to my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. We're called to eat the word. Now, we have a different understanding than other traditions about what the Lord's Supper means. But this morning, we're going to celebrate everything that we have talked about when we come to the table. We're reminded of what Jesus did by the Sea of Tiberias. We're reminded of the call to shepherd the flock, to feed the sheep. We're reminded that this represents, symbolically, the living Word, Jesus Christ, the breathed Word that created, and also the Word that has come alive in our hearts through His example and through the written Word. We're guided as we celebrate at this table to remember, it is a moment of remembrance as we eat this bread and as we drink from this cup, that it is His covenant that we celebrate. And we celebrate and we praise God for his death because it brings us our salvation. And we proclaim that word when we take this Lord's Supper until the day he comes again. You see, that's the food that nurtures. You know, if we had to live on the wafer in this uh, covering, wouldn't sustain us, that, that little tiny piece of bread. That little tiny piece of bread does not save us. But that tiny piece of bread and that small bit of juice remind us of food that is imperishable and a covenant that is unbreakable and the promise that if you have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and He has prepared a place for you in heaven. Someday, there's going to be a great banquet. And he's going to call all of his kingdom together around that banquet, and we are going to celebrate with the king of glory because we have been saved through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The invitation this morning is, have you asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? Is he the king of your life? And have you been invited to come to the banquet forever? As we stand together and sing our hymn of invitation, what is God's pleasure with you this morning?
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrill Street Baptist Church has six church goals, to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.